This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you a mummer. She told you. And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. Uh, my name is Anthony, and I'm speaking here to Sky in Texas. Hello, hello. Hello. How's it going down there? It is going good. The weather is warming up. It's supposed to be 80 degrees on Tuesday, and it is March was like the second week of March, so uh, I'm a little worried about that for myself, just because uh, I prefer cold weather. Um, oh, but other yeah. than that, like spring break is in a couple weeks, and uh, so the semester is just moving right along, and I'll be back home for the summer before I know it as well, so yeah, time's just passing. That's great. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, it's about 60 here, mid to high 60s in Boise. and. Yeah, it's been really, really nice. It was a little rainy, but uh, we just went through the first couple days of, like, the most beautiful spring weather. Oh, Mm. yeah. There is no spring in Texas. There's no spring and there's no fall. There's, like, (laughs) extended summer and then, like, sort of – it's actually mostly just extended summer with, like, fall weather for most other places. (laughs) That sounds fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Sure. Sure, that sounds fun. We're into the seasons. I miss oh. that. I miss seasons. I missed fall yeah. so much this last year that I was here. Oh. All right. Should we get started? I think it's you that starts All this right. week. Yeah. So I am doing number 3498, Nathaniel Gardner. My sources, my top one was actually Curtis Nixon, a relative who, if you tune in this Saturday to Stool Pigeon Saturday, he spoke to us about his grandpa and about his own time in the system, uh, serving time at the Idaho Department of Corrections. So definitely tune in on Saturday to that. So he shared so much about his grandpa with me. And he shared uh, several newspaper clippings that I couldn't find. So I'm not sure how he did it. Uh, It sounds like he has a lot of family that have done a ton of research on on the whole family history. Yeah, it was just so awesome that he shared. And he was, Mm -hmm. he's so passionate about his great grandpa's (laughs) story that seriously a huge role model of his. And I think you'll see why it sounds like he was quite the cowboy and he was really well known in Eastern Idaho. So besides him and the Idaho Statesman, I also use Library of Congress, Chronicling America, of course, search through their newspaper catalog, his inmate file, as well as one of his partner's inmate files, and then a Salt Lake Tribune article called Idaho Store Frozen in Time, just for a little brief excerpt on this little community in eastern Idaho. So 
Nathaniel Gardner Jr. was born on February 19, 1900 in Salem, Utah, to Nathaniel Sr. and Rosetta Gardner, and her maiden name was Bird. He was listed in the 1900 census as three months old, and he had two older sisters named Lexi and Chloe. His father, who was born in Benjamin, Utah in 1868, worked as a sawmill laborer in the 1900 census. And the family actually picked up and traveled to Idaho in a covered wagon to homestead in the foothills east of Idaho Falls in 1901. So at about one years old, Nathaniel Gardner is on his way to his new life, his new occupation, and they set up at this place called the Hog Holler. And the Gardner family actually began to ranch, and they raised cattle, and they were extremely skilled with horses. And Nathan, he would actually dedicate his life to ranching and being a cowboy. In the 1910 census, he's 10 years old, the Gardner family had grown. Than, as he was nicknamed, had four more younger siblings. He had Ford, Mildred, Sarah Diantha, and May. And his parents were busy between 1910 and 1913, they had Lester, Raymond, Eldora, Oof. also nicknamed Babe, and Nadine. So with a, a whole whopping total of 11 children between wow. 1896 and 1913. So he came from a pretty big family, and uh, uh-huh. they were LDS. At about the age of 15 or 16, he began working for the Empey family in Idaho Falls, who owned a, a massive ranching area. And here, Curtis said that Nathan started to get into mixed company and start smoking tobacco and drinking alcohol. And Curtis reported to me that alcoholism actually runs through the Gardner family and would be mm-hmm. at the root of most of Nathan's problems throughout his life and other you know, generations after him. But Nathaniel's first job riding as a cowboy for the Empey family would be his first contact with crime. So this episode is kind of a twofer because I kind of, you'll you'll see here. So in July 1915, Nathan's boss's brother, his name was Ernest A. Empey, his 10-year-old son and a neighbor boy, they were riding to the Empey Ranch 20 miles north of Idaho Falls when they were held up by a man holding a revolver in each hand. And the man was kidnapping Ernest Empey for a hefty ransom. He gave the two boys a letter addressed to the head of the Empey house, Ernest, his father, E.S. Empey. And Ernest's son actually pled to the kidnapper to release his father. Tears were streaming down his face. He's on his knees pleading, don't take my father. But the kidnapper, he pointed the gun at this 10-year-old boy and demanded that he and his friend ride to town and deliver a note. So Ernest urged his son to go and... The little 10-year-old boy and his friend, they wrote on, and they delivered the letter, and this is the first ransom note I get to read on the podcast. So, oh. the letter, yeah, it was reproduced in the Idaho Republican from Blackfoot, and it read, Mr. E.S. Empey and family, to save the life of your relative, who is now my prisoner, comply with the following demands. At 10 o'clock p.m., July 24, 1915, take $6,000 in U.S. gold coin and start from the ranch where the prisoner was taken. Drive out on the main road that leads to Henry by a sawmill in an open-topped wagon, keeping a lighted lantern in plain view at all time. When a man is heard to hello, hey, turn the rig around and then place the money, which must be in a white canvas bag in the road in plain sight behind the rig, using the lantern and doing it in such a way as to show an observer what it is. Then drive back to the ranch, making no stop. 
The place where the prisoner is kept, as well as other places along the road, are loaded with explosives and men placed to watch them who will blow to atoms anyone going contrary to orders. To kill or capture one of us would mean certain death to the prisoner, and your only safe plan is to keep this from the officers. We are bound Mm. to keep our word, and you must not expect anything else. Only one word, hey, will be spoken, and no argument or jango will be tolerated. The prisoner will not live till daylight the next morning if our orders are not obeyed. Let only two men accompany the wagon, one to drive while the other holds the lantern in plain sight. To find the prisoner would be to kill him and the finders by an explosion. We cannot afford to release the man who could identify us unless we get the money. So, this 10-year-old boy has this note. He rides it into the town. The kidnapper actually brings Ernest into the mountains and keeps him guarded during the day with a pistol aimed at him at all times. And they chains him up to a tree at night. And Ernest did his best to tire out the kidnapper by actually staying awake all night long and just staring at him, hoping it it could lead to a mistake later the next day so that he could run off. Hmm. And despite the threat to not tell the police or anyone else of the matter, he immediately got out to the newspapers. And officers combed through the mountains looking for the kidnapper's camp. Now, Nathan's boss, Bert Empey, and his friend Walter Anderson actually came within feet of the kidnapper and Ernest in the hills. And the kidnapper told Ernest to drop to the ground and roll out of sight, staying deadly quiet. And Bert and Walter, they were feet away from him and didn't see him. So after they passed and the coast was clear, Ernest actually started talking to the kidnapper and found out that he had worked for the Empey family about five years earlier on the ranch. But he had moved on to work for sheep herders in the time since. And the kidnapper asked if Ernest remembered firing someone because the Empey family didn't like his dog, which I was like, this is getting so absurd. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a former employee, and the reason he got fired is because they didn't like his dog. And so Ernest, he, he's starting to try to think back, and he actually remembered someone a while back who had a dog who was too eager sometimes and nipped the sheep and the lambs. And so they couldn't drain this this dog from biting the animals and oh, Ernest sad. said that one day he spotted a dog biting the sheep and said he will kill the dogs for doing it and the kidnapper quit took his dogs with him and after the two realized they knew each other Ernest realized it might not go so well for him because mm-hmm. he could be killed now that uh he knows that his kidnapper knows who he is so Ernest pleads for his liberty and he talks about his wife and children and the kidnapper seemed actually pretty moved but he refuses to let him go and he tries to get Ernest to chain himself up so he could take a nap but Ernest just kept talking to him until literally the kidnapper fell asleep with his gun drawn and pointed in Ernest's direction so Ernest he's like okay yeah he sees this person falling asleep he's slowly getting quieter he stands up and he actually starts to gather sticks and, and other things to make a fire. And each time he just wanders a little bit further out, grabbing wood and watching the kidnapper. And after a few loads, he actually realized his kidnapper wasn't going to wake up. And so he ran off through the woods. So spooked, he actually ended up getting knocked down twice after running into saplings. And he made it to a sawmill, and police were alerted. And then the kidnapper actually woke up and found Ernest Empey was missing, and new officers would be on their way. So he books it out. He comes to this cabin where a woman spots him and shoots in his direction. 
she knew who he was and what he was up to. And so he holds his hands up in the air, and he's disarmed and tied up, and the sheriff arrived to the cabin and took him to Idaho Falls Jail. And he told him that uh, there were people along the road who were determined to hang him. So they would have to ride quick to avoid people wanting to hang this kidnapper on the way to the county jail. So they finally make it. They find out the kidnapper's name. His He's named Leonidas M. Dean. When he arrived at the jail, he wrote that he desired to live in a right and proper way, perchance to have a family, and fill a man's proper sphere, which is impossible to the wage earner under present conditions. I appeal to Mr. Empey to inform the public that I treated him with as much consideration as was possible to accomplish my object and realize that alone foiled my plans. And it's discovered that Leonidas Dean had lived for many years in none other than Salem, Utah, where the Gardner mm-hmm. family was from. Yeah, mm-hmm. so Nathaniel's dad is actually asked to visit the jail and confirm Leonidas Dean's identity, and he does. He he arrives at the jail. Leonidas actually holds out his hand to shake Nathaniel Gardner Sr.'s hand, and he just brushes him off. He tells the officers, yep, that's Leonidas. I worked with him. I knew him in Salem, Utah. And Leonidas was actually convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to the prison. And on the back of the form charging him with the crime, he wrote one of my favorite letters, literally on his commitment papers to prison. Dear friend, this is a comical old world, but it keeps turning around, so it is hard to keep one's eye on the right side of it. Than Gardner came into my room a while ago and refused to shake hands with me. I immediately asked the keeper to take him out, which he did. Such men are comical to look at, but very disagreeable to converse with. Brainless is the malady with which he is afflicted. I have just taken a contract of from one to ten years, went in a partnership with the state, and they are to put up the grub, provided the savages don't get me before we get up to the diggings. They have it in for me because I didn't kill the man instead of treating him so well. I pled guilty to save the state any unnecessary expense. The county treated me right. I would soon starve to death if I had to stay here. They keep me in a neat little cage, and all kinds of queer-looking things pass along and scrutinize me as they have never seen a real man before. (laughs) They're going to make me up and present me to the officials at the Capitol as soon as the proper escort arrives, which I suppose will be in a day or two. I wish to express my sincere sympathy for you in the loss of your good wife, which acted the part of a kind and loving mother to me, and was loved by everybody." I'd be pleased to hear from you or any of the family who might care to write. With best wishes to you all, I am yours truly, L.M. Dean. And then in parentheses he wrote, They forgot to bring me any paper is why I'm writing on this. And it's just, it's just such an absurd little piece of history to see that. That's one of my favorite new kidnapping stories. And uh, it just happened at the age of 15. Nathaniel, you know, He's working for the family that this happened to, so it's kind of his first brush with this other life of of criminality. We haven't even gotten into his story yet, so he continued working for the Empey family, for Bert Empey, and uh, moved on to work with the Jack Robinson family in Idaho Falls, and then the next year worked with the Peter Swenson family ranching. And I found that the Swenson family, actually in 1918, caught the Spanish flu, which is, you know, 
something that's kind of in the news right now with uh, COVID-19 and the uh, fear that we have of this unknown virus uh, that we're dealing with across the country. And uh, it seemed that Nathaniel actually liked young Vera Swenson, the daughter of his boss. Unfortunately, it doesn't, it doesn't develop in anything just yet. But at 18, you know, he's not ready to commit. He's still having fun. And his best friend that he loves to have the most fun with is his younger brother, Ford. And according to Curtis, in 1918, Ford and Nathaniel actually got drunk. They rode into a dance hall in this little unincorporated town in Bonneville County named Bone, Idaho. They rode into the hall on horses oh, and shot out the lights and then rode off. And it was just them having fun. <laughs> Bone was named after this guy named uh, Oren Yost Bone, who opened the first Bone store in 1910, which served as Sorry, a grocery are you saying store. Bone, like B O N E? Yes, Bone. Like like a broken bone. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah, and it's named after this this Bone family, which is the coolest last name. And yeah, they seriously. they ran a grocery store slash post office that operated until 1937. And then other iterations of this Bone store have been built and burned down and destroyed. And there's still one there. And a lot of times during the winter, folks on long, what's the jet ski for snow? What is that called? A snowmobile? <laughs> Snowmobile. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I like jet ski for snow, though. That's what I'm going to call them now. <laughs> the uh, snowmobilers often stop at the current bone store and like gather, and it's that's that's where I read about in this Salt Lake Tribune article about it. But it's the last community in Idaho to receive telephone service in 1982. Hmm. So it was the last oh, place my. to have telephone service strung up. Yeah, apparently. Uh, Nathaniel lived and worked in Bone for the Bone family for a short time. And Curtis actually said that Nathaniel eventually robbed the Bone store. Uh, I didn't see any evidence of it in the newspaper. And it was really difficult to search for uh, anything in, in Bone. Searching Bone, Idaho came up with a lot of strange things, like thousands of newspaper articles about bones in idaho so that was Yikes, yeah I bet. <laughs> difficult yeah so finding robbery or the dance hall lights being shot out that might just be passed on from great grandpa nathaniel telling stories and you know great uncle ford telling stories between 1920 and 1923 nathaniel worked for another man named e.p morris who owned some great racing horses and it's in 1920 that he marries the daughter of his former boss peter swenson and that was Vera. He finally marries her, Aww. and he's 20 years old. And they marry in Rigby on January 11th, 1921, at Nathan's parents' home a few miles west of Rigby in a farming community called Grant. And they would have two daughters named Gail and Bonnie together. And I found on his findagrave.com profile that in 1921, he competed in the bareback and saddle bronco competitions. And in October 1922, he was reported that he won $325 in relay races using E.P. Morris's horses. And according to his Find a Grave profile, it states that he competed in the War Bonnet Rodeo in Saddle Bronco, Stock Saddle, and Bareback events. I unfortunately have very few connections with horses. My parents bought land. It was just a, a large two and a half acre horse pasture. And while we were 
on the land investigating. There were two horses there, and one came up to me and bit me on the chest. <gasps> and I have oh. not been a fan since, so I apologize to everybody who's into horses. I Gosh. totally respect it because they are majestic, beautiful, amazing animals. And I think if you do have that connection with them, I totally get it. I don't have that, and I think oh, if I spent sad. more time with horses, I'd befriend them. But uh, I yeah. have so little. I rode. I rode a horse once, and that is about my connection with horses. Nineteen twenty-four. After he's done all these things with E. E. P. Morris, he actually starts working for this guy named Ed Feldstead in Blackfoot. And another rancher, he's continuing his his work as a cowboy, and it's somewhere around this time that he and Vera actually divorce, and his trouble really starts. So Nathan, he and his friend Roy Lester, who was two years older at, at 27, born in Kansas, were seen as bad characters in the community, and there were a ton of thefts going on in the town. Though they were suspected as the thieves, nobody ever caught them in the act. The official record stated that around midnight on April 26, 1925, Nathan and Roy drove to the farm of Orla G. Beasley in a Ford car. They walked into the barnyard, stole a saddle from the side of the barn valued at $65, which, any guesses how much that is today? I'm going to say, like, uh, maybe close to $200? dollars 958 Oh my gosh! I triple checked it because I was like, there's no way. So this is like a $1,000 saddle. Yeah, so this is a nice saddle that they are walking away with. They put it in their car and they drove away. And then the following day, Sheriff Stevens of Fremont County busts the two with a stolen saddle along with another stolen saddle belonging to Roy Lennon in Bingham County. And Curtis told me that he thinks that Vera's father actually reported Nathan and Roy to the sheriff because of the divorce. So uh, there may have been some connection there. Yeah. So while in the Bingham County Jail, Roy and Nathan come up with a plan. And on April 30th, 1925, working with two other convicts, they actually cut a hole in a brick wall of the Bingham County Jail and escape. They're caught just days later on May 4th. They're brought in front of the judge, and they both plead guilty to grand larceny. They escaped for just a moment, and it was not enough, and it just kind of added to their guilt of the whole circumstance. So in his intake, the questionnaire that's sent to the prosecuting attorney, they ask what characters Nathan associated with, and the prosecutor, Hamilton, actually wrote, bad characters, thieves, and ask how Nathan's criminal tendencies were. He wrote, I think defendant had made up his mind definitely to pursue a course of crime. On his partner Roy Lester's intake, it stated, Defendant has the reputation among ranchers and farmers of making his living largely by stealing. Now, Nathaniel Gardner, he's number 3498, received May 6, 1925, from Bingham County. His crime is grand larceny. He's sentenced 1 to 14 years. Age, 25 years old. Born in Utah. Occupation, rancher. His height, he's 5 feet, 7 inches tall. Complexion, medium dark. Weight, 137 pounds, married with two children, both parents still living, and he had lived all his life with his parents. Now, I was curious about the married with two children because I was reported that he had divorced at this point. He had religious instructions. He had attended Sunday school and was part of the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Uh, he could read and write and had attended school for seven years. He drank moderately. He had no prior imprisonment. His closest living relative was his father, Nathaniel Gardner Sr. in Idaho Falls, regular and well-built. His teeth were in fair condition. He had no beard, no property on him when he arrived. His parents were both born in the USA, and his size of boot was five, size of hat, seven. He lived in Idaho for 24 years, and there was no Army or Navy record. And on his Bertillion, the warden actually noted that he had a scar from cuts on his right cheek. And you can see that in his mugshot. There's a cut on his left shoulder, a cut scar across his left index finger, and a scar from what I believe reads horse kick just below his left knee. And it's noted that oh. his nose and chin were regular, but his ears were very small, which I, I don't know if I've come across that yet. Yeah. In 1925, the prison population had increased from about 280 people in 1924 to an average of around 333 men, causing some serious overcrowding at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And only three cell houses were active and open at this time, including the 1872 Territorial Prison, which could hold 42, or if you doubled it up, 84 men, and the 1890 Cell House, and 1911's Number 2 House. So they had a lot more people than uh, they probably should have. Prison authorities mm -hmm. actually converted the old blacksmith shop into a dormitory, and many inmates oh. were actually housed during the warmer months in these improvised tent quarters. Oh. The prison shirt factory, that was in full swing. The warden described it as light, pleasant, and intensely interesting. And as a result of this compulsory work, the inmate, although lazy and shiftless when received, and with an innate aversion to work, soon receives a valuable training. He becomes accustomed to work, and the habit will certainly be to his advantage to the benefit of society when he is released from prison. In our modern shirt factory, the prisoner receives a compensation for performing the tasks assigned to him, and an additional compensation for all over-task. The money thus received may be spent by the prisoner in buying little delicacies that are not on the prison menu or sent to his family. And by that, it's commissary money or right. something you can send to your family and they would make between five dollars and fifteen dollars a month working in the shirt oh. factory around this time also how interesting that little sort of article is because they're making such i think especially given how early this is there is this idea of that there's a like a type of criminal that yeah. no matter what he did, no matter the reason he's there, he's lazy, he's shiftless, he has to be put to work in order to be rehabilitated. And so we definitely see sort of this this typing of people yeah. that if they're criminal, they must fall under this definition. So that is a really interesting thing you, you found. Yeah, yeah. It was just from the warden's biennial report uh, for 1925 oh. and 1926. and. yeah. He's trying to paint a really good light of the institution and everything that's going on. And there were right. there were a handful of escapes that occurred at this point. But he's basically saying, you know what? We've got men who are not just loafing around. They're not idle. They are busy working and doing their time. And they're learning through it. And they're making us a lot of money because yeah. they had 220 men working in the shirt factory. And they're producing 220 dozen shirts a day. That's 2,640 shirts like minimum that they were making a day. And if you made more than your dozen shirts a day, you yeah. were making a little extra money. So it was it was mm. incentivizing. 
they feared that if I'm too good at it, they're not going to let me go on parole early because I'm such a workhorse, you know? So there's that balance that you had to make. Like, okay, how much money do I have? How long do I want to work here? How long do I want to be in this prison? Because this is not a job that I want, really. (laughs) There's a chance that Nathan was probably put into work there. But if he wasn't working there, it's a pretty good odds that he would have been sent to one of the two prison farms that were in operation, which included a splendid dairy herd. They employed up to 40 trustees at a time with the food going to the prison chow hall to cut back on costs. You know, they strive to be completely self-sustaining. They tried to raise all their own food and, and everything else. So this is what they had. They had 14 workhorses, 45 cows, four steers, 16 brood sows, 800 turkeys, three horses, young stock, 21 heifers, 160 hives of bees for all that honey and for all their fields, three bulls, 104 hogs, 1,400 chickens, three mules, 22 calves, nine sheep, and 18 fat hogs. When Nathaniel listed his occupation as a rancher, he probably would have been given a job working with the livestock, maybe working on these farms. Makes sense. Now, the prisoners at this time were also making their own shoes in the shoe factory, headed by none other than assassin Harry Orchard, who had trained a team of prisoners under him who would make over 400 pairs of shoes between 1925 and 1926. And during this time, the group showers were installed in the shirt factory building. And for any listeners who have visited, you can actually see those 12 showers in the rear section of the laundry room. They replaced the tub in the basement of the dining hall that could bathe six men at a time. And the warden wrote in his biannual report about this. He said, it is easy to picture the dangers of the flotsam and jetsam of life, some with their infectious diseases, bathing in a common tub. This danger has now been entirely eliminated. So he's describing these prisoners as flotsam and jetsam of life, which I just thought Great. Great very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge time of growth and development at the prison because the shirt factory was making tons of money and the institution was allowing them to pay for renovations and repairs with this. And that money would result in the construction of number three house in 1928. So he may have helped in the hand of, of raising the funds to, to create that cell house. There weren't any write-ups or mentions of any issues with Nathan while he was incarcerated. I actually didn't find any newspaper articles with him during that 1925 period. So with a good record, he's actually paroled June 5th, 1926, after serving just under 13 months. After Nathan's release, the judge that convicted Roy Nathan, along with the prosecuting attorney and the sheriff of Bingham County, wrote in on nathan's partner roy's behalf and the judge stated that roy has suffered rather severe punishment for the crime committed he has a fine wife and some children having married a girl of a very respected family and the prosecutor called for the release of roy because he was considered at the time to be the less guilty of the two so the next meeting of the parole board in september they release roy as well And he is pardoned on December 5th, 1927. So I didn't see any other infractions in his life. So I think that Roy, like, realized that he had made a mistake and he kept his nose clean. He didn't get into trouble after that. Mm -hmm. Nathan, uh, not so much. He could not stay out of trouble. He just liked to have a good time. And 
During the summer and fall of 1927, Nathaniel got into a relationship with this young woman named Flora Clark in Blackfoot, and Flora ended up pregnant, and the couple rode all the way to Arizona on horseback where Nathaniel had family. And unfortunately, the baby, Terry Nathaniel, was stillborn when they arrived. So Flora and Nathan headed west to California where they married, and then Flora's dad found them and returned Flora to Idaho and pressed charges against 28-year-old Nathaniel. The prosecuting attorney from Blackfoot named Z. Reed Miller wrote, Information has been given to me to the effect that you are endeavoring to locate a man who was convicted in this county some time ago and sent to the penitentiary for grand larceny, but who was later paroled to the sheriff of Bonneville County. I understand that he has violated his parole and that you have been endeavoring to locate him. The man induced a 16-year-old girl to marry him and eloped from this county last year, and I am further informed that the couple have been living in California up to last week, where the girl's father went to where they were and brought the girl home. Gardner put in his appearance here Sunday and now is somewhere in the vicinity, probably at Idaho Falls. Will you please inform me as to whether you want him for violation of his parole or not? He is a notorious character and should never have been paroled as soon as he was. And the warden responded immediately, and he stated that this young man's record while at the prison was good, and on account of this, he was granted a parole when his minimum sentence was served. We see now that he should not have been paroled at such an early date. The trouble was that we were not familiar with his past record, and if all our prosecuting attorneys were as thorough and gave as much specific information on this questionnaires that we mail them as you do, we would be better able to form an accurate opinion of the prisoner's past. But with the meager information that some prosecutors supply us, we are apt to err in some few cases. We desire to return Gardner for parole violation and assure you that we have no desire whatever to foist any criminals off on the public. So, if you can arrange to have your sheriff pick him up and notify us, we will send guard for him. And he thanks the prosecutor for a very thorough report on his inmate number 3796, Thomas Gamwells, who had committed a recent forgery. Which I just, you know, it's it's these little conversations that are so interesting to me that Mm -hmm. these relationships that the warden would have with prosecuting attorneys, with sheriffs, with people from, you know, the heads of the Bureau of Investigation. There are these kind of interesting things and I I always wonder if they met at conferences and like discussed things outside of Mm. work and they probably did yeah so it seems that Nathan actually knew the sheriff would be after him because uh, he eluded captures through the fall until a letter arrived on December 7th 1927 again from the prosecuting attorney in Blackfoot stating we have finally located Nathaniel Gardner in Winnemucca and he is in custody there our sheriff is en route now to return him here We have had so many complaints and so much trouble concerning him since he returned here last. We determined we must get him. The warden and the Idaho officials were ready to acquire extradition papers if Nathan didn't leave Nevada willingly, but he did. And while being led in Bonneville County into the Idaho Falls uh, jail, he wrote a letter to the warden saying that, I am being held in Idaho Falls for perjury for marrying a girl underage. She told me she was of age when I married her, and she still sticks with it. Her folks said she's only 17. I can clear myself on it. I would like to have a chance, Warden. I have been with the sheep about all my time and have been trying to make good. The girl is willing to stick with me. I would like for you to give me a chance. It has been hard, 
There are a lot of people up here that hold it against me for going down to Boise. But Warden, I would like to have a chance for the woman's sake. Yours truly, Van Gardner. P.S. I would like to have a letter from you, Warden, if it isn't too much bother, for I haven't broke my parole. And instead of being returned to the prison, he actually remains in the Bonneville County Jail until the end of Hmm. 1928 when he's released. So he just gets a a jail sentence instead of returned to the prison. And after his stint, he went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where he worked on several cattle ranches. And Curtis actually said that during this time, Nathaniel and his brother were moonshining the still at Wolverine Canyon in the mountains east of Blackfoot. This is right in the midst of Prohibition, 1920-1933. As we talked with Henry Pointer, there was a lot going on, especially in eastern Idaho with moonshine and, and bringing in this distilled illegal alcohol. While in Jackson Hole, he got into a fist fight with some Swedish loggers in a bar in Jackson, Wyoming, and sheriff's deputies were called. He heard they were coming, so he jumped on his horse and he sped off, leaving the town, and this posse formed and chased him to the bridge between Jackson and Wilson, Wyoming, on Highway 22. He actually jumped his horse into the Snake River and swam across the river. As we have mentioned in previous episodes, the Snake River is super dangerous, and especially during, you know, the winter months when he did this. People regularly died attempting to cross it, but he made it no problem and actually escaped the, the police. He actually meets a woman in Jackson Hole named Zelda Van Fleet, and they move to Tempe, Arizona, and start building their family together. They marry in Missoula, Montana on October 19, 1929, and they would actually have three sons together, Jay, Terry, and Dennis, and four daughters, Sharon, Diana, Bonnie, and Jacqueline. They lived in Jefferson and Madison County, and during this time, the Great Depression struck the country. In 1930, the chief of the U.S. Secret Service, W.H. Moran, wrote that the United States was being deluged with the greatest flow of counterfeit currency in the history of the country. The Secret Service's job description at the time was to protect the life of the president and other officials and to safeguard the currency of the United States. And he said... It is all a part of the general reign of lawlessness, which is sweeping the country. We are making a great many arrests every day, but so far we have been unable to locate the printing or engraving plants where the money is being turned out. Practically all of it is the new small size bills, and through some peculiar psychology, few people examine it. So the allure to counterfeit money would get Nathan into trouble. A special agent from the Bureau of Investigation wrote a letter to the warden requesting the mugshot and other information of Nathaniel in December of 1928, so as early as 1928. Federal agents are wondering about him. So the warden complies. He says, yeah, I take pleasure in enclosing a photograph with Bertillion of our Than Gardner, assuring you always of our cooperation and kindly asking that you notify us if you have anything definitely on him, as he is still on parole from this institution. Nathan goes into hiding, and a newspaper clipping that Curtis actually sent me broke down the hunt for Nathaniel and his counterfeiting operation, and it said, Gardner is wanted on a charge of raising $1 bills to the $10 denominations. The work is said to be very crude. A number of the bills have been passed at rural stores throughout Jefferson and Madison counties and at three Idaho Falls stores. Loxie Owens of Idaho Falls and Earl Thompson of Rexburg are in the Madison County Jail at Rexburg, being held on the charge of passing the counterfeit currency. Gardner is alleged to be the one who did the work of bill raising. 
And his partner, Earl Thomas, was formerly number 4191, had spent time at the penitentiary for the theft of several horses in Blackfoot in 1930. So the heat is on for the capture of Nathaniel Gardner once again. That's such a funny crime. Like, I just, ima- I'm obviously this isn't how it is, but I just imagine him with like $1 bills just like drawing a zero in with Sharpie. Like, Literally, it's yeah. $10 now. <laughs> I, That's I so funny. I tried to figure out if they were printing something over the top or if it was literally mm. like handheld thing and that they were hoping in these little rural towns. It's that, that note from the Secret Service agent who said oh. that, uh, you know, it's through some peculiar psychology that few people examine these small-sized, mm-hmm. you know, counterfeit bills. So I think right. that's exactly what Nathaniel was doing and what other counterfeiters were doing across the country, which is just fascinating. I wish that I had evidence of the bills, you know, like a copy of one or something. But, uh, right. you know, who would have it would be the authorities at McNeil Island because uh, an agent of the Treasury Department Field Force Division of Secret Service in Salt Lake City, Utah, wrote a letter to the warden asking for a mugshot of Nathaniel Gardner, who was wanted by this service. And in 1933, he is finally caught by the federal agents and charged in the United States District Court in Pocatello, Idaho, and sentenced to serve three years in the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island in Washington and fined $1,000. He was listed as number 10592 at the McNeil Island Penitentiary, and he arrived October 29, 1933, and he served his full sentence there for this crime. And his father, Nathaniel Gardner Sr., actually passes away the following summer in 1934 from colon cancer. So, you know, we talk about the difficulty of being incarcerated and life outside of prison going on. You can only imagine the sadness that he probably went through you know, as he's serving time in a federal penitentiary and not being allowed to go and mourn with his family. He's released in 1936, and he returns to his wife and children. And Curtis wrote that it's during this time, living in Idaho Falls and Rexburg, that Nathaniel went through a dark, dark time. And his alcoholism increased, and he became really physically violent while he was drinking. And in 1939, he was arrested for beating Zelda, his wife. She remained with him, though, and it seems that things improved over the following years. In 1941, Nathan began leasing a ranch in Osgood from the Utah-Idaho Sugar Company and worked as a sharecropper. And he would work it for 16 years, growing beets, potatoes, grain, hay, and raising dairy cows that produced milk for the Challenge Dairy Company until he had to slow down to, to a couple of heart attacks. He received awards for horse pulling at the Eastern Idaho State Fair in the late 1940s and the early 1950s. And in 1957, Zelda and Nathan moved to Idaho Falls. Two years later, on April 14, 1959, Nathaniel was helping his brother-in-law move cattle to the summer range in the mountains at Waltz Ranch in Bone, Idaho. And he got on his horse and took off on a gallop over the hill ahead of the other cowboys. Now, he had some pretty severe heart attacks uh, just a couple years prior and his doctor told him that he shouldn't ride horses anymore that it would be too much for his system he galloped ahead of all these others and when the other cowboys actually made it over the ridge they found nathan on the ground dead his official Mm -hmm. death certificate stated that he had died from a coronary occlusion a heart attack at the age of 59 And Curtis told me that the doctors reported that his heart had literally burst. And the doctors said that he had died due to the excitement from the ride. And I think his obituary, I mean, it's, it says heart attack fell stockman. 
and he was stricken in Osgood while on horseback driving cattle to the summer range. He literally died doing his favorite thing, and mm. he's buried two days later in Fielding Memorial Park in Idaho Falls, leaving behind a wife and eight children. Wow. That is the life and time of, of a cowboy who had done it all. He had committed robbery. He had moonshined. He had counterfeited three marriages. He had eight children. And the whole time, it was all on horseback. And he, you know, literally died doing what he loved. Right. I'd really have to think the research done by the family because... You folks are so amazing at tracking your family lineage and making it so readily available on Ancestry.com, on findagrave.com. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to that website and everything was just listed out. And when I started this, I you know I didn't have a ton of resources. I had what Curtis has sent me and and a couple newspaper articles. But when I came to his findagrave.com, it literally just was a timeline of his life that I could follow along mm -hmm. and plug in mm -hmm. these news paper report. So I appreciate everything that, that you folks do. And thank you so much, Curtis, for sharing so much about your great grandfather. I understand why you respect him so much being a cowboy and living that lifestyle like he did it all. And uh, again, tune in this Saturday to Stool Pigeon Saturday and listen to Curtis about his own experiences within the Department of Corrections today. So... Yeah, that is Nathaniel Gardner. That's a heck of a story. I like that. And and like yeah. how like how nice that he just he died like doing exactly what he loved. Just like a kind of a, a nice ending to yeah. to his story. What would that be for you, Sky? What would so if I died doing something that I loved? Yeah. Uh <laughs> probably watching an old movie. Oh. Like that, I mean, that's so like old lady of me, but that, I, I, that, or like, I don't know, playing racquetball. I love playing racquetball. Um, <laughs> I love being with my family and just like spending time with them. I don't know. Like, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be ho riding horses for me. Yeah. Um, or really anything overly exciting. I just like, I'm just so content to just like sit in, I think. Like the most ideal situation, if I died watching an old movie, would be to like watch it in in a theater because oh. that just like enhances the experience. Because those are that's the way that those movies are meant to be seen. What about you? Oh, playing piano, no question. Oh yeah, yeah. Ah. Oh. <laughs> well, I hope yeah. that happens, but not for a very very long time. Yeah, me too, actually. I've got yeah. so many things I want to do with my life. And, Living uh, is, like, kind of cool, I guess. <laughs> well, right, excellent job, Anthony. Thank you. <clears throat> the one escape that comes to mind is the one that happened uh, at the time they dedicated Lucky Peak Dam. And we've been requested to build privies for this dedication of the dam. So, uh, I don't know, we built eight or nine or ten privies. They built a special compartment in the seat and raised it up a little higher than it normally should be. Two or three inmates apparently helped him and he got in that seat and they put the six toilets on the truck and went to Lucky Peak. Uh, it was discovered that this inmate was missing. So we immediately formed a search at two yard and other places. And then I think, as I remember, there was an inmate that 
came forth with the idea that the, this fellow escaped in a, hidden in a toilet. So we had four or five cars and called the sheriff's office and the police department. Because this guy was pretty rough. We figured he'd be dangerous to capture if he was on the loose. But I was the first one that got up to the Lucky Pete to examine the toilets. We discovered that this lid, the seat came off one of the toilets, and there was the compartment. But we found out that uh, somebody had jumped off the truck just before it got to Lucky Peak and went over towards the river. So we formed a searching party, and we searched all day, and we got uh, the sheriff's posse of horseback riders out. And they spent all day searching for the guy along the river and up over around towards uh, Table Rock. I think it was in June. It was in the spring, and it was warm. It was a beautiful day, and everybody had a good time with searching for this inmate, and uh, particularly the people on horseback, and they were pretty thorough with their searching. But uh, we never could find him. And the next morning, about 3.30, Sergeant Young called me at my home and said, say, have you got an inmate you're looking for? And I said, who is this? And he said, Sergeant Young down at the police department. I said, you know we got an inmate we're looking for? And he says, well, he's right here with me. And I said, you're kidding. He said, do you want him? And I said, are you sure? I'll be there in 10 minutes or less. This guy had spent all day up there along the river, and his socks and clothing was full of uh, foxtails sticking him, and he was miserable. He hadn't had anything to eat. Uh, he'd seen a snake or two, but he didn't know what kind, but he was scared to death, uh, and he was rather glad to get back in the penitentiary. Well, what do you have for us today? I have got number 8407, Josephine Fort. Really kind of an interesting story. So sources are her inmate file, Ancestry.com, Idaho Daily Statesman articles. There is a timeline of black history in Idaho from legislature.idaho.gov. There is an article from the Journal of African American History entitled Idaho Ebony, the African-American Presence in Idaho State History by Mamie O. Oliver from 2006. There is a History.com article titled Pullman Porters. There is a JSTOR Daily article titled The Historic Achievement of the Pullman Porters Union by Livia Gershon. And all of those uh, will make sense in, in a few moments. And then Wikipedia. Cool. So, Josephine Fort was born in Helena, Arkansas. She was the oldest daughter of L.T. Fort and Gertrude Fort, who was born Gertrude Shelton. I don't know what L.T. stands for. I could not figure out what that stood for. Josephine was born between 1918 and 1921. Different sources state different years. She said that she was 34 at the time of her incarceration, so... Given that she would have been born about 1918 or 1919, I think most sources lean toward 1919. Her parents were married in 1920, may lend credence to her being born in 1921, but of course, as we know, it's not impossible to have been born before the marriage. I don't really know the the situation regarding that. So LT and Gertrude, uh, much like Nathaniel's parents, had 10 children, pretty much one right after the other between 1920 and 1937. So 10 kids in 17 years. Josephine had six sisters, and again, she's the oldest. So her sisters were Christina, Bernice, Perline, or Perline, Beulah, Emma, and Doris. And then she had three brothers, Thomas, Sam, and LT Jr., 
From what I can tell, most of her young childhood was lived in Arkansas. The family moved to Memphis, Tennessee for LT's work. I'm not sure of the year. LT Sr., he died in 1939 of an unknown cause. I don't know why he died. There obviously was a cause, but I don't know what it is. The youngest child, LT Jr., was just two years old when he died. Now, Gertrude is left with this large family. Josephine would have been about 20, so she and and likely some of her older sisters can help take care of the family. And and after LT Sr.'s death, the family moves to New York. The year of that move is also unknown. My guess is they probably had family in New York, given the fact that LT had died. And I don't know if Josephine went with them. They're sort of in between basically Josephine's birth and when she moves to Pocatello, there's a lot of uncertainties. At some point, she did have a daughter and she named her daughter Irene. My guess is Josephine would have been about 16 or 17 years old at that birth. I also think that she married Irene's father because there was a marriage certificate for a later marriage of Josephine's and it said that she was divorced, but I could not find any records of this marriage in Arkansas, Tennessee, New York, or Idaho. So it's likely that that she was married to Irene's father, but I don't know who he was, when they got married, how long they were married for which is frustrating. Yeah. We do know that by 1951, Josephine had moved to Pocatello, Idaho. So basically between 1939 and 1951, there's just a lot of unknowns. But she moves to Pocatello. Don't know how she ended up there. My guess is because of the railroad connections. As we've talked about before, Pocatello is largely a a railroad town. And I'll talk about this in just a minute. But this is how a lot of African-Americans ended up in Pocatello as well. In Pocatello, Josephine worked as a housekeeper. She, in the intake form, that job is listed as, quote, a domestic in the area. And she lived with her granddaughter, potentially her daughter. So Josephine, even at a very young age, is already living with a granddaughter. So that is why I think she had her daughter at such a young age is because then her daughter would have had to have had a a baby at a very young age as well in order for that sort of timeline to fit together. We're going to leave Josephine here for just a minute. As I sort of mentioned already, there is a large African-American population in Pocatello. It generally had the largest African-American population in the state throughout the state's history. And all of this information is according to that article by Mamie O. Oliver, Idaho Ebony, the African-American presence in Idaho history. So in 1950, there were about 1,050 African-Americans living in the entire state, not just in Pocatello, but in the entire state. So obviously, even with a large uh, African-American presence in Pocatello, we still just don't have a lot of African-Americans in the state at all. Here's here's an interesting fact. Um, the Idaho African-American population grew from 595 in 1940 to 1,050 in 1950. So that's a 76% growth of the African-American population in 10 years. So that's, you know, after the war, some of that growth may be attributed to the sort of national post-war success and opportunities with the railroad. The economy starts to go up. Social opportunities start to go up for a lot of Americans, though it should be noted that African Americans most certainly did not experience the same economic opportunities that white people did. But the railroad was a a big way 
um, for African Americans to make a living. And so if Pocatello is a big railroad hub, then it it sort of makes sense that there is a a larger population of African Americans there. Sort of because Pocatello had one of the largest concentrations of African Americans in the state, the African American section of town sort of was known by a lot of different names between 1905 and 1940. So in 1905, it was known as the Walled City. In 1912, they called it the sort of Pocatello residents, I'm assuming white residents. They called it the Twilight Zone. Uh, in 1925, they called it the Restricted District, uh, which says a lot. And then in 1940, they called it the Iron Triangle. Uh, I don't know the reason for that name, but those are sort of all the different names that citizens called the African-American portions of, of town. And as I said, the largest employer of African-Americans in Pocatello was the Oregon Short Line Railroad. You know, from Pocatello, the railroads diverged into four different routes in eastern Idaho. So again, it is at that central location for railroad employees. African-Americans also found opportunities in the service industry, much like Josephine did. In 1907, the Optimist Club was founded in Pocatello, and its members described it as, quote, an organization of a better class of colored people. So the Optimist Club is working on sort of raising the station of these these African-American residents. In 1924, Pocatello had the first African-American Boy Scout troop in the state. And then in 1932, the Men's Civic Club was founded, and that is the precursor to the Pocatello chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. And the Pocatello chapter of the NAACP was established in 1943. So overall, many African-Americans came for job opportunities, but also, according to Oliver, quote, in the hopes of escaping, or at least attenuating, the overt racism that pervaded the East and was a defining aspect of social life in the South. So they come because there are opportunities with the railroad, but they also come because they're not dealing with Jim Crow laws as they are in the South and, you know, hoping for better sort of better social standings. The author does also note, though, that avoiding white racism in Idaho is not as easy as many migrants believed it would, but that is sort of a different story for a different day. So this is sort of where, you know, the the population that, that Josephine is living in. And so we have a record of her from May 22nd, 1951. Josephine marries a man named Jordan Ernest Mitchell. He's a Louisiana native. They get married in Soda Springs, Idaho, which is in Caribou County. Now, Jordan was a Pullman car porter. And African-American Pullman car porters were an integral part of the American railroad scene up through the 1960s. So, do you know much about Pullman car porters? I don't. Here's just a little little bit of background, and actually, I didn't know that much about them until really about a month ago when we were reading about it in, in class, actually. So, I'm excited to be able to put this newfound knowledge to use. Yeah. So before before the 1860s, trains didn't have sleeper cars. You couldn't sleep in bunks basically overnight. There's a man named George Pullman and he manufactures and perfects the sleeping car. He creates the George Pullman Company um, and they really specialize in, in creating sleeper cars. And he hired almost solely African Americans for Pullman car porters. And the work as a porter was incredibly hard. Porters carried baggage, they shined shoes, they cleaned the berths, and they had to respond courteously to nearly every request. 
The Pullman Handbook allowed for three hours of sleep on the first night of the journey and none for the rest of the trip. Wow. So if you're going across the country, you have essentially four or five days on three hours of sleep, which is insanity. Porters also had to go by the name George. Like, people would address them as George, and that's after George Pullman, or people could call them boy. That was that was sort of the way that they were supposed to be addressed. Obviously so patronizing. So we see, even outside of the you know the hard work and the the no sleep this this degrading way to address the porters so by the early 1890s most railroad employees were allowed to unionize except for the african american porters african american railroad workers had tried to organize but the pullman company refused to negotiate with them so in 1925, it's been almost 30 years of African-Americans doing this grueling work, not being able to sleep, being called by patronizing names. And so finally, a black socialist and radicalist named A. Philip Randolph, he organized and became president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And their demands in, in this union was a living wage instead of just tipping. So they did not get paid uh, a wage. They got paid through tips. They also requested a 240-hour work month. They previously worked about 400-plus hours a week, again, on three hours of sleep. And then they also wanted four to six hours of rest per night. All very reasonable, because they are human beings who deserve rest and fair compensation. And so, again, you get from these demands a clear picture of how these African-Americans are being treated by these railroad companies. So for 10 years, they fight and fight and fight. So, you know, as they're fighting, uh, the federal government and company continue to refuse to give in to their demands. An interesting little note from the article, The Historic Achievement of Pullman Porters Union by Livia Gershon, a key to their success was the fundraising and letter writing campaigns by the Colored Women's Economic Council, which was founded by wives of Pullman car porters. So while their men were off, um, you know, doing their jobs, the women would stay home and they would meet together and they created this council and they would write letters and they would fundraise to try to get basically their husbands listened to. And they were always allowed to say they would since because they got together when their husbands weren't in town, no one could ever accuse them and and the the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters of sort of trying to unionize. So this was sort of a loophole, a way they were able to get around um, the challenges that that these people that the companies were forced on them. So finally, in 1934, the American Federation of Labor finally recognized the Porter's Union and forced the federal government to extend protections to African-American trained car porters for union activity. Like I said, this was a 10-year fight after the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters had been first organized. People give the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters a lot of credit for laying the groundwork for the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. So this is this is the legacy that Josephine's husband Jordan Mitchell is that's this is what he's doing and this is where he's working. So I just thought that that was, you know, kind of an important thing for us to understand is that also I think sort of a an understanding of why there is sort of a substantial African American population uh in Pocatello at the time. So the marriage between Josephine and Jordan it's not great. 
Not great from the outset. They had married in May. By November, they were already separated. They were divorced by late December 1951, early January 1952, so not even married for a full year. He supposedly beat her several times and was arrested on one occasion. After the divorce, however, Josephine still lived with Jordan because she hadn't found another place for her and her granddaughter to live. So he was allowing her to stay in his house, obviously in separate rooms. So now it is Friday, January 18th, 1952. Josephine goes to work in La Paloma Cafe. Um, Just a side note, there is actually currently a La Palomas in Pocatello. It's on 249 Yellowstone Avenue. I'm not sure if this is the same place. My bet is that it's not, but um, I was curious if that was still there. She goes to work at the La Paloma Cafe. While at work, she notices that there's a $20 bill missing from her purse that she knows was in there. And she believes that Jordan had taken it. And the reason she thinks Jordan had taken it is because he had to pay her back. Um, He had to pay her $35 back for a reason that she didn't state. And so she thought, so she paid him, you know, a a 20, a 10, and a 5. That 20 is now gone. And so she thinks that it's him who's taken it back. So after work, she goes home to Jordan. He's undressed. He's ready for bed. She accuses him of stealing the money, and he denies that he stole the money. So an argument ensues. He says, I didn't take the money back. And she says, if you don't give the money back, I'm going to have you arrested. And Josephine claims that at this point, he starts to beat her. And that Jordan supposedly claims, I'm going to give you something to have me arrested for this time. So he's beating her, you know, trying to defend herself. She opens a dresser drawer, reaches in, and pulls out a loaded 38 pistol. Now, this 38 pistol she did um, buy, obviously not for the purpose of killing him. She'd actually bought the pistol from the operator of the La Paloma Cafe. His name was Blair Clark. And she'd bought the pistol from Blair Clark two weeks before this event uh, is occurring uh, because she'd gotten in a fight with another African-American woman in town and she wanted to be able to defend herself in case this woman came around. And we don't know the details of that fight. But she has this 38 pistol, so she reaches in the dress drawer as Jordan is beating her and she points it at him and she's backing up trying to get away from his beating and she's saying leave me alone and he's not leaving her alone she says then that she backs into a chair and then quote the gun went off and she shot him in the stomach Obviously, the prosecution believes that she did it on purpose, and so the intake papers actually omit this point of view. And so she claims that it just happened to go off. She didn't mean to shoot him. But according to Josephine, despite being shot in the stomach, he continues to come after her and try to beat her. She finally manages to escape and runs out the door. And she doesn't say where she runs, but she just basically starts running to try to get away from him. And I think also sort of recognizing what she had done. So she runs out the door. He also sort of stumbles out the door. He's holding his stomach and he runs to a neighbor's house and he says, Josephine shot me. So a neighbor calls an ambulance and Jordan is taken to the hospital. He actually stabilizes for a little bit, but he does die two weeks later on February 1st, 1952. Josephine is actually arrested the same evening that she shot him. Had her first preliminary trial about two weeks later, actually kind of right around the time that Jordan dies. And she is, uh, her preliminary trial is for first degree murder. 
Josephine pleads not guilty to this charge, um, which I think is fair. She goes to full trial on April 7th, 1952. The jury consisted of 10 men and two women. Though race is not mentioned, it is probably safe to assume that they were probably all white. It is during this trial that she gives her side of the story about the gun going off um, on accident, and it's reported in, in the newspapers. The trial lasts four days, and on April 11th, she is found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, not first-degree murder, which I think is probably the, the proper charge in this, in this case. You know, even yeah. if it wasn't a case of the gun accidentally went off, which I don't think she walked into the, the house that night intending to kill him. And, and they were able to establish, I think, that this gun had been, had been bought several weeks beforehand, and, and, and it was sort of for this argument. So a day later, on April 12th, she is sentenced to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. She enters the Idaho State Penitentiary on April 15th, 1952. So I don't have a copy of her Bertillion, unfortunately, um, but her statistics, she's 34 years old, born in Arkansas. Her occupation is a domestic. She is five feet, one inches, about a hundred pounds. So she's pretty slight. Complexion is, quote, brown negress, hair color black and eye color brown. You know, Josephine comes in and she is willing to serve her time. She first places herself before the Board of Correction in late 1953, about a year and a half after being received in the prison. The, the penitentiary receives a letter from a Pocatello resident named Ruby Y. Brown, who is a former employer. She said that if Josephine was placed on parole, Ruby would happily employ her again. She says, Ruby says, quote, I desire to say that I found Josephine honest and trustworthy and her work excellent in all respects. Josephine was above reproach as far as her work for me was concerned. I do feel that she is entitled to consideration by your board, and I would have no hesitancy in employing Josephine again. I think around the same time, a petition from local Pocatello residents, I think both black and white, was received asking that her sentence be commuted and that she receive a favorable ruling from the board. However, these petitions were not enough to get her out in 1953. In fact, she doesn't seem to be placing herself in front of the board for about another two years. Yeah. Um, So in late April 1955, A probation and parole agent named V.H. Wardle does a placement investigation for Josephine in Pocatello. So he talks to four different Pocatello residents. One of them is Ruby Y. Brown. Ruby, along with a woman named Mrs. V.C. Watts, did not need work, but they vouched for her trustworthiness, saying if they needed work in the near future, they would definitely hire Josephine. And then a woman named Mrs. Ray Parks said that she was willing to give her work for 75 cents an hour for eight hours a day, basically to to clean and and, uh, be a quote-unquote domestic in the house again. But she is offering Mm. her a job. And and I think because um, Mrs. Brown and Mrs. Watts, you know, vouched for her her work and for her trustworthiness that Mrs. Parks was, you know, willing to give her a job. And then a prominent African-American Pocatello citizen named Mr. Joe Griggs said that he would work with the African-American community in town to help Josephine find a place to live. And so because uh, V.H. Wardle went through and talked to all these people, he recommends that Josephine, you know, he said that she faced good prospects on parole and so recommended 
her release. So she is released from the penitentiary on May 2nd, 1955. She served three years and 17 days of a 10-year sentence for voluntary manslaughter. Wow. Yeah, three years, um, which I think, again, we can maybe look at sort of race relations in Idaho a little bit. Uh, I think a white woman who had committed voluntary manslaughter would not have been kept in prison that long. And then relative today, yes. like they would have spent a lot more time in prison yeah, for that definitely. crime. Regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So interestingly, despite the fact that the original parole investigation was cleared for Pocatello, she was actually allowed to move to New York, I think because that is where her family was. So about a year later, a June 1956 parole investigation finds Josephine at 1980 Madison Avenue, apartment eight in Harlem. This location is still, there's still family apartments in central Harlem. The rent there, do you want to guess what the rent is in, in Harlem? Uh, let's say $1,000 for a oh, buddy, bedroom. It's $5,000 a month. So any listeners outside of Idaho, we have a very uh, low yes. cost of life. Yeah. And this is not an invitation to come because <laughs> our wages are also equivalent to yeah. our cost of yeah. life here. So, but that is yeah. crazy. That is. So I don't think, I don't wow. think they would have paid that much. It's about a four bedroom and Josephine lived there with her daughter, Irene and her granddaughter. She also had a sister and a brother-in-law who lived next door. So they're all sort of sort of sharing this space. And I think because Harlem was sort of sectioned off, I think even at this time in the 1950s from sort of the rest of New York, it would not have been $5,000 a month, even in 1950s money. So, you know, she's living here. She took a, quote, very responsible attitude toward her daughter. She also lived close to her mother, who lived in the Bronx, and she was seeking to find larger living quarters for her and her family. She worked for the Ben Rowe Company as a machine operator. She earned 30 to $49 a week and had been working there for several months before this report was taken. The parole officer noted that she worked in a field where there were seasonal layoffs, but when she was laid off previously, she had worked with the New York State Employment Service to immediately find new work. So she is working really hard to ensure that she has a job. I think not just for how, you know, for parole purposes, but because she has a family to take care of. You know, she is yeah. working really hard to make sure that she and her family have a good living situation. So the parole officer noted that she made an effort to abide by all rules and regulations of her parole. She always reported when she was supposed to. She attended church regularly, and she showed maturity, good adjustment, and responsibility. And so for all of these reasons, the parole officer recommended that she be discharged from parole, which she was in late June 1965. So her life after prison is pretty unknown. There was one record on Ancestry.com that potentially lists her death. This is for Josephine Fort, who was born about 1919. The death date is November 9th, 1961 in Manhattan, New York. This seems pretty reasonable to me that this is her, but the record that they have is just basically a list of deaths. There isn't any sort of identifying information, but my guess is is this is her. So she dies at the age of 42 uh, in Manhattan. Don't know why she died, but she died quite young. And if this isn't her, then then we just have no idea. 
um, what happened to Josephine after she was discharged from parole, which is is good, obviously. I think she proved that yeah. she was perfectly willing to be a productive member of society. And, and I think, you know, recognizing that this was a mistake that had happened with her husband and, and willing to, to serve the time for that and willing to, to then go forward beyond that as well. So that is our Josephine Fort. Interesting. Yeah. All right. We got into trains and horses and all kinds of things today. We did. I, I knew that about Pocatello, but I didn't understand the porter right. system. I've never heard of that. I didn't realize that they weren't paid like a yeah. wage, that it was yeah. tips only. Like how difficult and so many hours mm-hmm. of work for potentially yeah. nothing. I wonder if there are any like uh, oral histories mm-hmm. or if there's a book. What What's the book that you um, Yeah, so it's titled The War in American Culture and it's like an anthology. So if you search like a war in American culture and World War II, it should be sort of that first anthology book that pops up and it sort of talks about the way that, that the railroads were and, and A. Philip Randolph was such a huge figure in the African American community in the mm-hmm. fact that he, you know, changed the way that African Americans were working on the railroad. It's interesting to learn about it in school for the first time and then have it come up, you know, in the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for being in school. You know, I do what I can. <laughs> Adding another level of scholarship. <laughs> well, yeah. Nice. All right, Sky. It's been a great day. Yes. We actually recorded our Stool Pigeon Saturday before recording this mm-hmm. episode. So it was really neat. I definitely checked this out on Saturday. Curtis Nixon, Nathaniel Gardner's you know, great-grandfather, he's got some fascinating stories about current incarceration. Yeah, so that was that was really fun. Thank you of so course. much. And nice work on all this Thank research. You. Same to you. Uh, do you know, was there anything going on in the women's ward kind of while she was here? Do you know how many women were in there in the 50s? Um, she did come in the same day as Catherine Marie Coates, who was in for forgery from Twin Falls. So in 52, we had five new inmates come in all except for Josephine were in for forgery and insufficient funds checks Cecilia Caillou who was who'd come in in 1950 she was in for burglary in the second degree and most of these women who came in in 1952 were released by 1953 Uh, Josephine is the only one who stays basically past 1953 but, yeah. you know, she was in for voluntary manslaughter, whereas everyone else was in for forgery. So Ruth Seconder is also in there. She was in for assault with a deadly weapon. Wow. We talked about her just a tiny bit with Kenneth Hastings. Yeah, William Owen. She was the driver. And then a woman named Kay Goddard, who was in for burglar in the first degree, would have been in there. Um, as well as Ald- Aldwilda Reams, who was our yeah. youngest uh, inmate at 15 years old, and we'll have to do her story uh, in the next few seasons. Oh, as well as Grace Elizabeth Scott, who I will cover, I believe, in the very last episode of the season. So uh, this was a pretty full women's ward. There were five people by the time Josephine came in, and then had another five added after. So they're definitely starting to double up. I would bet, I think in the 1950s, uh, they did a lot of gardening outside. Uh, I think they had a library at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thank you. I just was yeah. curious if, you know, you had an idea of how cramped it yeah. would have been. And sounds like it was, it was starting to get full, to that yeah. place, yeah. that early The 50s, 1950s yeah. was, was pretty, f- like, full all the time. 
in the regular prison too mm-hmm. they they were getting up to 600 men around this time so they're at capacity mm-hmm. and you know the construction of four and five house would help mm-hmm. with that but that didn't happen until 53 and 54 55 that time mm-hmm. period so yeah a huge time for growth and development in the prison's yeah. history at that point everybody thank you for tuning in sticking around listening do your own time do your own number we'll see you next week and definitely tune into this week's tool pigeon saturday take care bye see you if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe so others can find our podcast if you're interested in more old idaho penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode follow the old idaho penitentiary on instagram and facebook If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.